The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. One hundred years ago, the world moved on from a deadly pandemic, with the following decade being defined as the Roaring Twenties, a period of economic growth and flourishing culture. So will the 2020s be defined in a similar fashion? To discuss life after the pandemic, I am joined by the award-winning science writer and former member of the House of Lords, Matt Ridley. Are lockdowns now a thing of the past in Britain? I think so. I don't think there's any way we can return to locking down the healthy to try and protect the potentially ill. We've been doing that on and off for two years. I'm not sure it was the best strategy. Myself, I'd much prefer more focused and voluntary measures to protect the vulnerable. And I think it's a very blunt instrument with huge harmful effects and after two years, we simply can't go on like this. We've got to find a way of living with this virus that doesn't involve putting society in the sort of deep freeze like that. You know, lockdowns are fine for people like me who live at home and get Amazon deliveries. They're not much fun for other people living in small flats in the middle of cities, you know, or the people who have to work and send Amazon deliveries and deliver them, you know. So it's a very unequal impact. And also they're fundamentally, I suppose, unsustainable in a world which is driven by economic growth and productivity. After the end of the Spanish flu 100 years ago, the world seemingly moved on extremely quickly from that pandemic, especially in terms of society, culture. Do you see us doing the same thing with with this current one? Yes, I think I do. And can I just divert briefly into a point about lockdowns and the Spanish flu that I think is relevant and is getting left out? And that is that lockdowns may have contributed to the virus being more virulent for longer than would otherwise have been the case. The Spanish flu stands out as one of the only flu epidemics which got more virulent, not less virulent during uh, the period. It went from being a relatively mild disease in the spring of 1918 to being a vicious killer uh, by the autumn. Now, the reason for that, according to Professor Paul Ewald, uh, is because it started spreading in the trenches. And in the trenches, if you fell mildly sick, you slept it off in a dugout and didn't give it to very many people. If you fell very sick, you were evacuated by stretcher bearers to a field hospital and then to a, on a train and a boat back to England where you infected lots of people along the way through the healthcare system. It was attendant-born. You were giving it to people who, who, who handled you. Now, I think lockdown did the same thing in this case. That is to say, in the months of March, April 2020, if you had a mild case, you were told to stay at home and give it to nobody. If you had a severe case, you were sent to hospital, where the first thing you did was give it to a bunch of nurses who gave it to other people. You know, there was rampant spreading of this virus within hospitals. So I have a feeling that we encouraged this virus to stay virulent. Now, obviously, there are lots of other you know, uh, factors that affect whether a virus is virulent, including the health of the, the host and so on. But we never talk about 
or we very rarely talk about, the the variation uh, in the virus itself in terms of how virulent different strains are. We've finally begun to talk about that with Omicron, but it does seem to me a terribly important thing that we encourage these respiratory viruses to get mild. I suppose my point originally, and I think you know people were so fatigued by talking about all of this stuff, and perhaps that's one of the reasons that we haven't had proper debates and discussions around the historical context of COVID. And as I mentioned, after the war, after Spanish flu, people completely forgot about it and didn't want to to mention it. And you think the same thing might happen in the next few years? Well, yes and no. I mean, I think this has been such a big political event that it will leave uh, implications. But if you go back to 1889, 1890, there was the worst pandemic in the 19th century. It killed a million people. It spread around the world by railways and steamships. It may have been a coronavirus, by the way. There's some evidence for that, although we can't be sure. And yet I had never heard of it until a year or two ago. It killed the somebody who would have been the king of England, George V's elder brother. You know, it killed a lot of people. It's a really big event in world history, that so-called Russian flu pandemic of 1890. And yet... As I say, it's completely missing from 90% of the history books uh, that one reads on, on that topic. So that does suggest that 1889, 1918, we soon forget about these things. But I don't think we'll forget about this one quite so much because it's been so uh, intertwined with politics. And one of the things people perhaps have forgotten already is where this virus originally came from. Now, you've written a book about this, viral, about the origins of COVID-19. Do you think that China in particular has basically gotten away with uh, repeated failures to be transparent and open and perhaps even worse crimes at the beginning of this pandemic? Yeah, my book is co-written with Alina Chan, a brilliant young scientist, and we both came to the conclusion that this was a very important question. It needed proper investigation. Most of the scientific and journalistic establishment didn't seem to be that interested in where it came from. We're accepting uh, an explanation early on about wildlife markets for which there was no evidence. There is still no animal being found that was carrying this virus before humans got it. Um, which is remarkable because we did find that in the case of SARS. We very quickly found a pattern of food handlers being infected, etc. But either way, the uh, there is no question that it either started in a wildlife market somewhere in China or it started in a laboratory somewhere in China, and almost certainly in both cases in Wuhan. There's no evidence of cases before Wuhan. Um, that was where it got going in the autumn of 2019. Now, that means that China is the country where this happened. The Chinese government has tried to deflect attention from that by saying, oh, it probably reached Wuhan on a shipment of frozen food from somewhere else in the world. Well, they've got zero evidence for that. It's an extraordinarily implausible scenario. And frankly, it was disgraceful of the World Health Organization to endorse it as a a plausible hypothesis. But leave that on one side. I'm not here to say that China is to blame. What I am here to say is that in the event of something like this happening, we need to behave like we do in the aftermath of a plane crash. And that is to say, share information about what happened. We've got quite good in the aviation industry at making sure that everybody gets to learn every lesson from every plane crash, whether it was their plane or somebody else's, whether it was in their country or some other country. 
That's not happening in this case. In fact, it's got worse. There's considerable evidence that sharing of information from Chinese laboratories and Chinese scientists to Western scientists has clamped down and shut up since the pandemic began. There's no evidence that the kind of virology research which might have led to this, and we present a lot of strong evidence that that might well be the case, that you know the, the most concentrated piece of research on these kind of viruses in the world was happening in a city called Wuhan. There's no evidence that that kind of research has slowed down. And there's no evidence that the possibility of laboratory leaks anywhere in the world is being addressed by better regulation or by scientists getting together and discussing which kinds of research they should no longer be doing, which kinds of research should be regulated in a different way. So I very much fear that at the moment we are making the world more vulnerable to another pandemic, not less. So there's two questions on that, I suppose. The first being, why aren't we talking about the origin of COVID anymore? At the beginning of the pandemic, this was seemingly a topic But it was very quickly shut down. You were accused of being a conspiracy theorist if you disagreed with the WHO or China's idea of where this came from. And the second question is, as you mentioned there, perhaps there is going to be a chance of another pandemic happening within our lifetimes if we don't learn the lessons of this one. Yes, it's vitally important that we do find out how this started, because we need to know whether or not, as a result of this pandemic, we clamp down on the wildlife trade or we clamp down on virology research labs. Those are the two main possibilities. At the moment, we're doing neither. Arguably, we should be doing both since we don't know the origin of of this virus. But there is no doubt that following a lot of early interventions by the scientific establishment in the West, as well as by the Chinese government, people with a vested interest in not having the laboratory leak properly explored have managed to persuade much of the media establishment to dismiss it as a conspiracy theory. In the spring of 2021, that went into reverse for a while. And in the wake of the WHO's farcical investigation itself, there was much more openness to looking into this possibility for a while. But then the intelligence community in the United States came up with a rather damp squib of a report saying, well, we just don't know. And everybody took that as sort of ending the debate again, or not everybody, but some people did. So it is quite hard to keep this debate alive. And I'm finding that there are, you know, where are all these journalists who are supposed to be so tireless in their determination to investigate things? Well, of course, they can't investigate much in China because there is no free press. But there is still lots of information in the West and in various documents that do emerge from China, which enable us to piece together intriguing bits of evidence one way or another. And there are enough people keeping this going that I don't think it will ever go away until we resolve the question. I suspect, and perhaps you disagree with me, that one of the major reasons that journalists in particular have not looked into this issue was because of the previous president of the United States, who took this issue very seriously, perhaps for his own motives, but it doesn't matter. He, he at the time, um, obviously came out and said that China wasn't open. This was the China virus in his very crude language. And therefore, journalists immediately decided that this was something not to look into. I think there's no question that there was a Trump effect here, that um, so much of the media saw itself as the official opposition to Donald Trump. 
and therefore became just as likely as he was to be biased in the way they looked at things. And that was a terrible pity. Now, that shouldn't have applied here in Britain or elsewhere in the world where Donald Trump was not our president. But I think there was an element of that uh, in the media globally, yes. He hasn't been president for every year now. The US presidency under Joe Biden has actually continued much the same line, which is that a lab leak does need to be taken seriously. Jake Sullivan, the National Security Advisor, has said some quite strong things on this. So it should no longer be a partisan issue and it should be possible to take things seriously. So looking forward into the 2020s, we've got the threats for future pandemics and obviously the threat from this current one still very much being alive. Rising inflation, uh, national debt in Britain has, has swelled rising taxation, uh, again, a migrant boat crisis in Britain that's causing lots of issues for people in the Kent coast. There's a lot of problems. How can any way we be optimistic about the 2020s? It's a very good question. And I can depress myself as much as any man with a list like the one you've mentioned. Uh, I don't think you mentioned the energy policies of the UK government, which I think are economic suicide, frankly. But I can be quite pessimistic about Britain in its current manifestations, but I'm not pessimistic about the world. I'm very optimistic about the world in the 2020s. And here's why. I wrote a book in 2010, 10 years ago, uh, called The Rational Optimist, saying the world has been getting better, not worse, despite predictions that it would always get worse by everybody. You know, the, the leading voices are always pessimistic in every period of history. Uh, and yet there's been a tremendous improvement in human living standards, poverty declining faster than in anybody's lifetime before now. And I think that those factors still exist. I've just come back from Africa. Now, Africa's had the best two decades it's ever had. It, it, most countries are seeing 5-6% economic growth every year. Population growth is falling rapidly. Malaria mortality is plummeting. HIV mortality is falling. Uh, the number of wars and conflicts on the continent has shrunk pretty dramatically. And whereas 10 years ago, you could, people, you could find people who would say Asia had spectacular growth rates for a while... Africa's never going to experience that. There's too many people, there's too much poverty, there's too much disease, there's not enough infrastructure, there's too much corruption, all of these things. Actually, Africa is seeing tiger economic growth of the kind that, uh, it should be called lion, I guess, economic growth of the kind that uh, Asia had uh, a generation or two ago. And so I think it's very important to remove oneself from a Western European perspective when being pessimistic or optimistic and look at the world as a whole. Because, uh, you know, a billion people living without electricity, many of them without running water, men, most of them on the continent of Africa, are suddenly seeing huge improvements in their living standards. That matters much more than whether we in the West, who are already quite rich, get a bit richer. But it would be nice if we could adopt some much more uh, ambitious and enterprising policies in the UK to make sure that we stay at the forefront of global prosperity and not fall behind. Why has the West, and I suppose in particular Britain, stagnated so much in recent decades? Well, 
It's hard to put your finger quite on it, but I do believe and did believe that the European Union's way of doing things was a big part of that in Britain. Uh, that on the whole it was an anti-innovation system that run by the European Union. It had a, uh, a system of devising laws uh, as a, through bureaucrats, which was very open to lobbying by vested interests. We saw this in all sorts of ways. Just look at what happened to James Dyson, for example. And we had a, a system of gold plating any rules and regs that came out of Europe in Britain to make sure that they were even more restrictive. We, we on the whole didn't pay enough attention to the forces that lead to economic growth, as we had done in previous decades. And those are freedom, enterprise, and uh, the ability to do trial and error, to try things, and some of them work and some of them don't, which, you know, the Californians got right for a while. The uh, Song Chinese got right a thousand years ago. The Renaissance Italians got right 500 years ago. The Victorian Britons got right, etc. We became a defensive, complacent country. And frankly, since Brexit, we haven't changed enough of that. Talk the talk about unleashing the British economy and getting away from the harmonisation of rules, which means that you can't do experiments, essentially. But we haven't walked the walk. As Britain faces huge problems with our energy prices, is it time to scrap the net zero policy? Yes. I've been arguing against net zero as a policy since before it was enacted. I think it's a huge mistake. I think it will do untold economic damage in this country to zero benefit because there's no evidence that other countries are going to go at the same speed. I think it's a myth that you can have energy that is renewable, affordable and reliable. Those three legs of the trilemma, as we used to call it, have not been equally paid attention to. We've been uh, insisting on uh, low carbon energy rather than on energy that's reliable and affordable. And I think what we're seeing now, we're paying the price for not having exploited the extraordinarily good shale gas reserves that lie under the UK, which would enable us to have cheaper gas prices. We're going to pay a huge price for relying on the wind for our electricity because it, it isn't reliable. Uh, it, it often doesn't blow. Storing electricity is incredibly expensive and difficult. It can't be done yet. And it, the cheapest way of storing it, of course, is to store gas or coal, you know, and that's what we used to do, which is basically a free way of storing things, in the case of coal anyway. So I do think that there are enormous mistakes being made in pursuing an, a high-cost, low-reliability energy strategy, which is what we're doing. On that list of depressing items that I mentioned earlier, I mean, you mentioned energy prices. Neither of us mentioned climate change. I suspect that would be the number one priority for this government in terms of its pessimism looking into the future. And many people see climate change as being the number one long-term challenge that we face do you agree with them? Uh, no, I don't. I think climate change is real. I think it's man-made. I think it's an issue. I think it's going to be a problem in the future. So there's no sense in which I'm a denier, although people do throw that label at me. But what I don't think is that it's the only problem we face, or even that it's the biggest problem we face. Because if you read what Extinction Rebellion and Greta Thunberg and people like that say about climate change, they make it out that we're all going to be starving to death within 10 years. Whereas, in fact, uh, the world is finding it easier and easier to feed itself and so on. At the same time, we do have real environmental problems. We are 
badly overfishing the oceans still, doing huge damage. We have invasive species causing extinctions on islands in particular, but even in Britain, you know, the red squirrel is going extinct around where I live because of the grey squirrel. You know, these are real conservation issues. We have habitat problems and so on. So read the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change reports, not the summary for policymakers and not the NGOs summaries of what it says. Read the actual scientific reports and you find something that is a a real but slow and not huge threat that we should take a few decades to work out how to deal with in a way that doesn't cause poverty and further environmental damage because a lot of what we're doing at the moment is causing damage, environmental damage. I mean we're burning trees in power stations in Yorkshire Trees imported from the Carolinas in America, from old-growth forests. We're burning them. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how get 30, how get 20, 20, 20, how get 20, 20, how get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. To make carbon dioxide. And we're saying that's a better way than burning coal. I'm sorry, it produces more carbon dioxide. And you say, well, the trees regrow, so it doesn't matter. Well, I'm sorry, in between that, them regrowing, you've stolen a woodpecker's lunch, you've stolen a beetle's lunch, you know, you've done real damage to biodiversity. And for me, the obsession with climate change is an environmental mistake as well as an economic mistake. And there may even be a political mistake in this as well. When you look at Germany... They've started to close and will continue to close down their nuclear reactors because the Green Party there is very insistent that this isn't the the right way of creating renewable energy. And by doing that, they're having to increase their reliance on Russia. They're building the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, which is just about to be uh, concluded. Are you concerned that the West is becoming too reliant on Russian gas? Very much so. I mean, I think the UK is not particularly buying Russian gas at the moment. It is buying Russian coal, interestingly. It has a very high carbon footprint. Uh, It's coming from a very dodgy regime uh, that, frankly, has got a very different strategic interest from what we have in the West. And as you say, the decision to close nuclear power all around the world, which is happening rapidly everywhere. I mean, we're about to close a lot of nuclear power stations in the UK is a huge mistake because it's the one low-carbon form of energy that has a very small footprint in terms of land and the amount of resources it needs, produces reliable energy whenever you want it, and has no carbon emissions. And yet, it doesn't suit the renewable industry. Nuclear is the least capable to live alongside a renewable sector. Because nuclear needs to pay off its huge capital costs, and that means it has to run flat out all the time, it can't afford to switch off when the wind happens to blow. Gas-fired power stations can afford to do that. So if you're going to have a renewable-dominated electricity system, then you're going to have to back it up with gas. Whereas if you had a nuclear-dominated electricity system, uh, you wouldn't need nearly as much gas to back it up and you couldn't really have a big wind system at the same time. So frankly, the renewable industry has got its teeth into government 
and has used all those subsidies that have been given to it to be a very effective lobbyist for its own interests. And that has meant deliberately campaigning for the shutting down of nuclear power stations, for example, in California, as Michael Schellenberger sets out in his new book, Apocalypse Never. As you say, the government's main priority seems to be this net zero policy that was introduced under Theresa May. Boris Johnson's flagship policy seems to be climate change. And despite everything else, U-turns on various different policies here and there, his one consistent thing has been we need to reduce our carbon emissions and he's been going to COP26 and trying very hard to persuade other nations to do the same thing. Can you talk about the economic consequences of this policy on British people? Yes, you see, I think when you live in SW1, you get the impression that everybody, including particularly young people, badly wants climate change policies because those are the kinds of people you meet within the civil service, within the media and so on. But if you live in Northumberland, as I do, and you talk to ordinary people, the vast majority of them scoff when the phrase climate change is brought up and they scoff even more when you tell them that you're going to take away their gas-fired central heating, their gas cooking, their diesel car, their tractor, if they're a farmer. And if you're going to put up the prices of of energy, you are going to run into real resistance in exactly the parts of the country that the Tories won in 2019 for the first time. So I think there's a political car crash coming. I don't know exactly when it'll manifest itself, but I think it will. And I think Boris Johnson and his colleagues have made a huge mistake in forgetting about the people who put them in power. Are we heading into essentially an, a self-inflicted cost of living crisis this year? I think we do have a cost of living crisis this year. We've got significant inflation. Some of it is coming because of the supply chain issues. Some of it is coming because of energy prices. Energy is often the cause of inflation bursts, as it was in the 1970s, or at least a factor in them. And that's because energy is the lifeblood of the economy. I mean, the economy is a thermodynamic system which uses energy to create useful things. You can't make useful things without using energy, whether it's, you know, even this conversation relies upon the application of useful energy uh, energy to make a useful thing. So energy is absolutely central to the economy. If, the, if you put the cost of it up, you will see inflation. That is a cost of living crisis. And yes, we could have avoided large chunks of it. Not entirely. Britain is not insulated from what happens in the rest of the world. But I think there is a degree of self-infliction going on here, both by the globe and by the country. Let's talk about China and climate change. Do you think the Chinese and our other rivals around the world could take advantage of these net zero policies by having an economic edge over us in the future? China has positioned itself to exploit the Western obsession with climate change fairly well. The vast majority of our wind turbines and the parts of them or our solar panels are being made in China. The idea that green jobs in places like Scotland would appear in the manufacture of these technologies simply hasn't materialised. So on the one hand, China sells us the goods to do it. In particular, we're moving from an economy that was very dependent on oil to one that's very dependent on rare earth metals. And China has a pretty well a monopoly on the supply of those. They don't only occur in China, but they are easily abundant in China and they've they've developed their resources and exploited them. So they have a huge stranglehold on the, uh, the, the supply of these vital things, things like neodymium, for example, which is a, a rare earth metal. 
So, yes, in that sense, China's going to do well out of the Western obsession with climate change. Meanwhile, it's building coal-fired power stations like there's no tomorrow. It's burning more coal than the rest of the world put together now, which is quite an achievement. Now, you know, China is seeing environmental improvements like the rest of us. It's seeing rapid reforestation, for example, as, as is Europe. And that's largely because as people get richer, they don't need to exploit forest resources as much. But that's only because they can switch to fossil fuels instead. I mean, you know, the great thing about coal is that woodpeckers and beetles don't eat it. <laughs> so when you burn coal, you're no longer stealing nature's lunch. And this is a point that the critics of fossil fuels often miss. You know, it was because we switched to coal in this country. And yes, I live in an area that was heavily dependent on coal. And I did, uh, in a previous part of my life, have some benefit from more modern coal mining. The, the great point about coal is that it stopped us cutting down forests. Let's talk about Brexit. In 2016, this was meant to be a revolutionary moment in our politics and in our economy. Do you think we've reaped those benefits of that referendum yet? I think it's disappointing how little we have done since the referendum to realise the potential benefits of Brexit. Yes, we've signed a lot of good trade deals with the rest of the world, mostly by replicating what the European Union had, but not entirely. We are pioneering new trade deals as well. But frankly, where is the abolition of restrictive regulations that have prevented innovation in the European economies? Let me give you a very specific example of that, and one I've been slightly involved in, and that is the gene editing, the CRISPR technology that enables us to do gene editing of plants in particular, but also animals and also to some extent medicine. Now that's a brand new technology that came along in the last 10 years that enables you to do very precise edits of genetic material without introducing whole new genes from other organisms or anything like that, which is what uh, the environmentalists objected to with the previous technology. So it's an extremely safe technology. There's no, it can be extremely safe. You know, it can make sure it's extremely safe. It would enable us to reduce our dependence on things like pesticides and chemical fertilizers, which is a good thing from the environmental point of view. It has enormous potential benefits for the agricultural industry, which is a significant industry, and for the other industries that go alongside them, indeed, even for conservation. And all we had to do when we came out of the European Union was say, right, unlike the, the European system, which insisted that this be treated with enormously onerous and time-consuming regulations that made sure that nobody even ever applied to do it, we will follow countries like America, Canada, Argentina and others into allowing this technology as rapidly and as simply as possible so that people can go out there and breed new varieties of crops uh, that are less reliant on chemicals. And we could have done that with just a wave of the wand, instead of which we set up a consultation, following which we had a period of navel-gazing. And I now hear we're going to have another consultation before we actually do anything. And there's one you know, very specific example of this. A British research institute in Scotland developed a a small gene edit that enabled pigs to resist a serious disease. It had no other effect on the pigs. They were equally healthy, but they were totally resistant to this very nasty virus. It was developed, as I say, in, in I've suddenly forgotten the name of the institution in Scotland, but it was developed in Edinburgh. It was then commercialised, is being commercialised around the world by a British company called Genus, but they can't do it here. 
Our pigs can't benefit from it because we haven't yet changed the rules. And when we thought about changing the rules, we said, oh, we'll think about it for plants first. We won't do animals yet because what, you know, the animal welfare lobby might object. You mean the animal welfare wants pigs to be sick instead of healthy? I'm sorry, I don't follow the logic. Remainers would argue and have argued that the political and economic chaos resulting from Brexit, from the Brexit negotiations, has meant that the project has ultimately been a failure. Do you think Britain should regret Brexit? I don't think Britain should regret Brexit for a moment. Uh, If you think about one simple issue, you'll see why. And that is the approval of the vaccines necessary to bring the pandemic to an end. Thanks to Kate Bingham and her colleagues, Britain very quickly approved some very effective vaccines. It was a tremendous gamble and it showed how we could act fast if we wanted to. The European Union took many more months to think about it, then indulged in some very misguided negotiations with the vaccine companies that resulted in some real problems. And not only that, the Medicines and Healthcare Regulatory Agency, the MHRA, approved these vaccines very quickly, much quicker than the European Medicines Agency, much quicker than the FDA in America. How did it do that? Well, the Europeans said they did, that it did it unsafely. That's not the case. What they'd done, interestingly, was run the tests of how safe and effective these things were in parallel instead of in sequence. And the reason that I knew this was possible was because when I was on the Science and Technology Select Committee in the Lords, in the run-up to Brexit, we took evidence on the effect Brexit would have on science and related issues. And the MHRA came to us and said, well, we don't like the idea of Brexit, but we do admit that the European Medicines Agency simply adds six months of delay to rubber stamping our decisions. They don't actually add any value. And we want to get into a system where we can do parallel rather than sequential decision-making on new medicines like new vaccines. They actually stated that as an ambition back in 2016. They did it in 2020. And the result was quicker but equally safe approval of vaccines. Now, yes, in theory, we could have exempted ourselves from the European uh, vaccine policy and done it, but we would never have done so. We'd have come under enormous criticism from the media if we had done so. The fact that we had Brexited meant that we were able to do that. That's just one example. Uh, There should be many more examples because we should have acted nimbly uh, in other ways. But I can't think of another example as big as that on the opposite side of the ledger, with the possible exception of the grotesque over-interpretation of the Northern Ireland Protocol by the European Commission. I'm glad you mentioned Northern Ireland because this has been one of a series of rows that Britain has had with the European Union since leaving. Do you think it's time for us to reorientate our foreign policy away from the EU, who's being hostile in many ways, particularly France, and towards the rest of the world? I wanted Brexit to result in us being a good neighbour rather than a bad tenant of the European Union, to use Daniel Hannan's phrase. I had every ambition that we should be as well disposed towards France and Brussels as, as any country in the world. But frankly, the way that they, the things they said about Britain and the way they particularly went about interpreting the Northern Ireland Protocol 
making a big deal out of a tiny amount of trade, relatively speaking, that might have crossed the EU border in Ireland compared with the huge amount of trade that crosses other EU borders. These were so hostile and so, frankly, sour that, yes, I've been left with the view that, A, I'm no longer at all interested in rejoining your club, and B, I'm afraid if we need friends, we're going to have to look elsewhere in the world because our neighbours at the moment uh, take a hostile view of us, which is a pity. I don't want them to. I don't want to reciprocate. I don't want to be hostile towards them. But I do think that they ought to bear some consequence in terms of us looking elsewhere for friends in the world, to Australia, to, to America, to Canada, to uh, Africa, to South America. More broadly, as Western economies stagnate and as political divisions are shown to be rife, do you think the West is in decline? I think the West is in relative decline. There's no question about that. It's unable to achieve the same sort of rates of economic growth that catch-up countries in Asia or Africa or Latin America can. And in that, so that's a good thing on the, on the whole, because it means that uh, the people in poor countries are getting rich faster than people in rich countries, which is, you know, a good thing if you're worried about uh, deprivation and poverty. So the West is in relative decline. But America shows that relative decline doesn't have to be inevitable and can be reversed. I mean, if you look at what happens in the United States, you know, around 1980, everybody's writing it off. Japan's going to eat its lunch. It, it's in a post-Vietnam funk. It's, it's a country with no great future. All of its semiconductor industries are going to go to Taiwan, etc., there then comes a digital commerce revolution in the 90s of the most extraordinary kind, which America effectively donates to the world, but very lucratively through Apple and Amazon and um, Google and all these uh, enormous companies. That's a country that you might have written off in the 1980s that then came roaring back strongly, particularly in the 90s. And it was no accident, by the way. The Clinton administration passed a series of rules in the mid-1990s about how e-commerce should work through Congress. And they were amazingly libertarian. They basically said, uh, you should be free to do whatever you like on the internet uh, without too much let or hindrance. And this led to the growth of e-commerce, and the rest of us followed suit. So a good policy can revive a Western economy. One of the other famous things the Clinton administration did was introducing China into the WTO. And the consequences of that on Western economies has been, in many ways, good, cheaper goods, far greater trading trade flows. At the same time, manufacturing jobs have largely shipped been shipped overseas. And this may have led to, as I said, economic stagnation, but also political anger. And in 2016, both in Britain and America, there were huge political revolutions. On the politics of this, and you talk about the economics, but specifically on the politics and the sort of way that our society is going, do you think that we are, we are in decline, that we are morally and sort of socially in decline? I remain an optimist. And I do so based on mainly economic arguments that I think there is every reason to think that even if we're not the leaders, British people will be able to participate in the economic growth of the 21st century. 
The thing that worries me is much more the, the cultural funk we're going into. Uh, you know, when I look back at what destroyed previous civilizations, whether in Arabia or China or India or Rome uh, in the past, it was some combination of bureaucracy and superstition. Either mandarins in Ming China preventing anyone doing business, basically, or priests in Muslim Arabia basically telling people what they could and couldn't read or think. And there's some nasty combination of those two forces happening in the West at the moment. And it's taking the form of increasing censorship of ideas in universities and in uh, journalism and movies and everything, as well as uh, the the growth of sort of bureaucratic stagnation, of which I've already mentioned. So, yes, at three in the morning, I can be as pessimistic as anybody. And the thing that worries me is that we are turning our backs on the Western Enlightenment, on the idea of freedom of expression, freedom of thought, uh, freedom to experiment, freedom to try new things, freedom to tolerate each other, it's the lack of tolerance. You know, it, it's not the Pol Pot Cambodian regime. It's not the Cultural Revolution of the 1960s in China. But it does have elements and echoes of both those phenomena. And that really bothers me. I finally got you onto a pessimistic point. And <laughs> on that point, I'm going to end the interview. Thank you so much, Matt, for joining us. Thank you, Stephen. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this show and are interested in hearing more episodes like it, please follow this podcast and drop us a review. If you have any suggestions of people you would like to be interviewed, you can let us know via the Apple Podcasts app.